0: I was reading up on the, uh, this particular parable that we encounter today, and the people who do the writing at uh, these commentaries were saying that this parable is different from just about any other parable in Scripture, and it's because uh, they think that Jesus used a, type, a different type of storytelling, that he took uh, the storytelling from the Egyptian tradition, which traveled from the Jewish travelers all the way from Alexandria. <clears throat> and these uh, Egyptian stories would use an ironic reversal to teach a moral truth. And that was the point of the story. And they think that Jesus took this particular story, uh, took a story and did the same thing in the form of a parable, a very different one from the ones that we encounter. It's about stories, to, about an ironic reversal to teach a moral truth. When, we, when I first read, I don't know about you, but whenever I f- first read this, the first thing that kicks into my head is guilt. I feel guilty, Uh, I don't have barns or anything like that, but I have a wine cellar, and every time I look at that wine cellar, I always think to myself, well, store, don't store things for yourself here here on earth, but store them for yourself in heaven, and I think, what am I going to do with this wine cellar when I get to see God face to face, but I still have it, but this is not about guilt, I don't think the story is about guilt. I think it's about inviting us to consider the distortions of our lives and how we can look at the distortions of our lives and what we can do about the distortions of our lives. Guilt, I think, is the last refuge of the ego because you won't let anybody do something for you, especially God. And guilt may sometimes allow us to change, but not always. Most of the time when we feel guilt, We'll say, God will say, I want you to do this, and our usual response, guilty response is this. I can't do what you're asking, dear God, but I sure do feel bad about it. Will you settle for that? I don't think there's much guilt here, so perhaps we need to look at the distortions of our lives. I heard one time Barbara Brown Taylor say that God doesn't intend to improve us. God intends to save us, and in order to do that, God shakes us, like in this particular story, to point the distortions of our life. It's the same thing that Flannery O'Connor did. You remember Flannery O'Connor, the southern writer? I one time read an interview, with, uh, uh, that, uh, an interview with Flannery O'Connor, and she says the novelist with religious concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to that person, and his problem will be to make these, these appear as distortions to an audience— which is used to seeing them as natural. And then she went on in the interview and she said in the interview, in order to recognize distortions, we must have some concept of what is natural. In order to recognize what is deformed, we must have some concept of what is whole. In order to identify what is ignoble or base, we must have some concept of what is noble or virtuous. In order to recognize wrong, we must have some concept of what is right in order to recognize evil we must have some concept of what is good and then she concludes by saying if we have no criteria for making these distinctions we have no basis for making moral judgments except personal whim and that of course only makes us slaves to our passions so what are some of the distortions in this particular story well, the first one's about money last sunday's story was about money at the very end of it it said you cannot serve god and mammon i'll always read that and i know i say, you know i read that story i don't like it but i read that story over and over and i read that particular line and and i say, you're right i think that what the gospel is trying to tell us is you can't have two gods you got to have god or you got to have something else or you got to choose between one or the other and i understand it but i wish there had been an addendum to it quite frankly and the addendum that I would add to that particular story is says, you cannot serve God and Mammon, but you can serve God with Mammon. Think about it. You can serve God with Mammon. One of the things of which I am certain in my life is this: money, the dollar, has no moral and it has no ethics. You know who has morals and who has ethics? You have morals, and you have ethics. Money is a powerful instrument. We all know that. It controls a large part of our lives, but it has no ethics, and it has no morals. It only has what you give it. You have the ethics. You have the morals. And so you can serve God with mammon, from my perspective, and the clearest evidence of it most recently for me is a week ago Saturday, my wife and I had the opportunity to go over to the new African-American Museum And it took a lot of money to build that museum, and I think it serves God's purposes, to remind all of us of what our history is, what our common history is in this country, and we will be a better people the moment that we're able to go to that museum. And it took money to build that. You can serve God with mammon. I think the distortion about money is this. There's a very fine line that we have with our possessions and our money. And the line we smudge is the line between want and need, between desire and necessity. There's an advertisement in the uh, New York Times, I see it very frequently, it's about a clothing store, about a men's clothing store, and the advertisement goes like this, an educated consumer is our best consumer. And every time that I read that particular story, because I want to buy that ad, because I want to buy whatever it is that they're advertising, is that advertising is not just about information, it is also about formation, forming us and telling us, almost like pushing our teenage buttons and saying, you need this, don't you? You need to get this. Amazon knows us better than we know ourselves. How many of us go on the computer, and the moment it shows up, Amazon is trying to sell us something, whether we want it, need it, or not. But they're certainly there to convince us and to push what I think is our teenage button, saying, push this thing and buy it. It will satisfy you. It is a powerful instrument. The question is, what is the distortion that we create around this powerful instrument about money and the impact that it has on our lives? And I tell you this, it is a powerful instrument, but it has no ethics and it has no morals, you have the ethics, and you have the morals, and you can have power over it. So I think the first distortion in the story is about the distortion that we have in our relationship with money and our possessions. The second distortion is that gate. Notice that there's a gate in the story The gate that separates the rich man and Lazarus, which, by the way, in all of Jesus' parable, there's only one person called out by an individual name. It's this one, Lazarus. Nowhere else in any other parable. So there you have it. So you have the rich man, you have Lazarus, and there is a gate between them. I always wonder what are the gates that we create for ourselves that keep us separated? God doesn't create those gates, we create those gates. And the question always about the distortion is why do we create the gates? Which are the ga- gates that we create for ourselves that keep us apart from each other? And sometimes the gates won't even allow us to look at each other. I wonder sometimes does this rich man ever saw Lazarus sitting on the other side of the gate? Did he ever look at him? Did he ever see him? After World War II, the Dutch leaders in Java realized that their empire was... To- Uh, tumbling down around them. The Indonesians wanted them out of their out of their land and the governor general had an interview with Lawrence Vanderpost, a South African uh, reporter and novelist and in the interview that I read, uh, he tells the governor general tells Lawrence Vanderpost, I can't understand it. Look what we have done for them. Look at the schools and hospitals we have given them. A hundred years ago, their population was only a few million. Today, it is 60 million. We have done away with malaria, plague, and dysentery, given them a balanced economy. Everyone has something to eat. We have given them honest and efficient administration. We have abolished civil war and piracy. It says, look at the roads, the railways, the industries. Yet, they want us to leave. Can you tell me why they want us to go? Answer Vander Post: "I am afraid it is because when you spoke with them, you never had the right look in your eyes. When Jesus looks at the individuals and in the stories, like the rich young ruler, the woman caught in adultery, the Canaanite woman, the woman at the well, Jesus' eyes shone not only with love but with respect. As for an equal. Jesus never, ever looked down on anyone, including each and every one of us. The question for all of us is this. How do you look at other people? What's the look in your eye when you see somebody who's different from you? What is the gate that separates you from somebody else that we have built for ourselves and does not allow you to see that individual with love or, if not with love, certainly with respect as an equal. In this racially divided country in which we live, you have to ask the question, what's the look in Anglo-Americans when they look at African-Americans? What is the look that Christians have when they look at Muslims? What's the look in their eyes when Muslims look at Jews? What's the look in their eyes when African-Americans look at Latino-Americans? What's the look in our eyes when we encounter anybody that looks different from us? I am convinced that every civil rights movement in our society is a movement of people claiming, wanting you, the individual, the dominant society, to look on them as an equal with respect. I think every civil rights movement is all about that, including the ones that we are experiencing today. A few years ago, Hannah Atkins was the assistant here at our church, and she was in charge of the Spanish-speaking congregation. And then when she was out on maternity leave for two months, I led the, the service myself at 1 o'clock, the Spanish service. And during the exchange of the peas, there were a couple of uh, young teenage girls that were part of that. And whenever we went to exchange the piece, they, uh, whatever it was because of custom, because it was uh, part of the society person, I'm not sure what it was, but every time we went to exchange the piece, they would give me a very limp handshake and they would look down almost like a look of submission. And I took it upon myself for those eight weeks that I was with them. And I kept telling them over and over again, you give me a firm handshake and look me in the eye Because you need to tell everybody, this is a civil rights thing, you need to let everybody in our society know that you're just as good and as strong as they are and you want to be treated with the same kind of respect you're going to treat them. I kept going over and over until finally, whenever I approached them by the eighth week, they looked at me with bug eyes. Big, big eyes. And a handshake that would almost crush my hands. I think that's what the civil rights movements are all about. It's all the demonstrations. I want you to look at me. I want to claim my space, and I want you, the dominant society, to look at me, not to look past me. You ever go to a Washington party? Somebody walks up to you, shakes your hand, but immediately is looking over your shoulder to see if somebody's more important in the room. I have a good friend who uh, goes to these parties, and when somebody does that, my friend grabs their hand, looks at them and says, look at me, I'm right in front of you, don't look beyond me. In our diocesan council, I belong to the diocesan council of our diocese and one of the, there's a deaf man in council and one of the things about the love about the deaf community is that when they speak, they have to look at each other. They can avoid each other's eyes The person who's translating for them, who's signing for them, they have to pay attention to it. They have to look at each other. And I always love the look in their eyes because it's not looking beyond anybody. They're looking at somebody with respect as an equal. That gate, that's a bad gate. I've lived it. I was at a meeting of the church not too long ago. I'm not too proud of this. And after the meeting, I walked out, and a friend of mine needed, he and I needed to finish our conversation, so we were walking to another room, a large room, and when I was walking into the other room, I I said, come on over here, I think there's room in here for us to finish our conversation. And I looked in the room, and sure enough, the janitor was at the back end of the room polishing the floor or something like that, and I walked in and I said to my friend, come on in here, there's no one in here, we can continue our conversation. And the janitor all the way from the other end of the room heard me, and he says, what do you mean there's no one in here? I'm in here, and I count. And I thought to myself, when I read this story, I said, that's the gate. I don't see the guy. I can't look him in the eye. And if race is a problem, class is just an equal problem, the same kind of problem, and may even be a tougher nut to crack. I think the distortion in our story is that even after the rich man is in hell, he still won't recognize Lazarus. He talks to Abraham and says, Get your gopher to bring me some water. That's all he's ever seen with Lazarus. Get that gopher to bring me some water because I am so hot down here. Even in Hades, the man could not recognize Lazarus because of the gate. The gate. It's the distortion of our lives, and we create the gate. God does not create that gate. God created all of us, and our sin is always that we rend asunder what God has already created as equals. There's no way to change the ending of the story. The rich man is hot, and Lazarus is not. But there is some good news here. Always, always remember that God is for us, not against us. And God knows that the rich can be as imprisoned by their wealth as the poor can be imprisoned by their poverty. There is much more to be said about any of us than our money. There are better ways to measure our our worth. Our value lies in God's love for us. Our value lies in that God cares for us. Our value lies in that God keeps hoping against hope that we will learn to pay attention to each other, to open our eyes and see those about us, and to care for each other as if there were no one else to care for and for all as if we were all but one just as God does. Amen.